that nature is is central. Being in contact with it is vital for humans to live properly. Being out there in nature, sitting, just sitting, anywhere where there's greenery, sit in the woods, sit on the hillside, sit on the clifftop, be in nature. Hi, I'm Graham Gardner, and thank you for joining us for Adventures in Dowsing, podcast number 59. Now, in the last episode, we heard from John Appleton about his megalithic and astronomical discoveries at Avery. Well, this time, John is in a more expansive and philosophical mood, and he tells us how he developed his love of outdoor gatherings and camps, and why it's important that we keep these traditions alive. And we also learn more about his great sky goddess and his ideas on how to approach a site. But I asked John, how did it all start for him? The beginning is always a used place to start. Um, And I think for me it's 80 years ago, as a little lad, going with my parents to a camp organised by a group which was called the Social Credit Party at that time, which had sprung from the Kibbo Kift which was a woodcraft kindred, they called themselves. The Kirby Kirt, as a name, was much discussed. Hargreaves said it was Cheshire dialect for proof of great strength. Everybody said it wasn't. Nobody spoke like that in, in Cheshire. He got it from somewhere, but it was never clear where it came from. Um, they called themselves as a group, the kindred, and got into a lot of trouble because KKK linked with the American (laughs) racist organisation. And they were always seen as a bit weird. But I had an interesting experience when I was a Boy Scout. I joined the third Butney, as my father had. And uh, we went for a camp down in Sandy Ball's estate, down uh, in the New Forest. And I turned up with my little tent and I put up a little totem outside and was quite happily living in it. Anyway, I was already used to it. Everybody else was in sort of big army camp tent things and doing boy scouting with bugles and joint meals. It just didn't feel right to me. But I could hear, just across the way, the... Uh, Order of Woodcraft Chivalry singing around their fire. And they've got an interesting history because they're one of the more occultly oriented groups. And I wish I'd been able to walk out of the Boy Scout camp and go down there and talk to them. I never did, I was too shy. But they were at Sandy Balls because Sandy Balls' estate was run by two brothers with a lot of sympathy for both groups, the Cuba Kept and the Order of Woodcraft Chivalry. And at that time they were also hosting a camp for unemployed men. An attempt, because unemployment was a major problem then, an attempt to give them a, a skill and a sense of comradeship and a lift out of their depressed state. I can't think what it was called, but it was quite an important thing to do. And one of the powerful events that happened that I still remember clearly is the one of the evening sessions was in a pit just in the wood off the campsite with a big fire in the middle and sitting on the banks of the quarry were lots of people, their faces illuminated by the firelight and they were singing, singing the old songs that they had sung years before, before my birth. But that that image stayed with me. And I suppose being into camping, living in the world, aware of nature, very conscious of nature, has been with me all the time. There were interests at that time. Tumuli and the old straight track and the ancient Britons were very much part of those, that group's belief systems and understanding. 
How did the Social Credit Party come about? Well, John Hargrave has an interesting story. He was in Gallipoli during the First World War as a stretcher bearer. He was absolutely stunned at the ineptitude of the troops who were delivered on the beaches and just couldn't look after themselves in the natural world. Um, And when he came back to England after the war, he was a scout and he suggested to Baden-Powell that they should take more interest in showing people how to live in nature, um, not just be a slightly sub-military organisation. And he wrote for this Boy Scout magazine a thing called Totem Talks, which was um, very much oriented towards, I think, Native American lifestyles and to the natural, the human tribal consciousness. Um, Anyway, naturally, he and Baden-Powell didn't get on very well and he was asked to leave. Um, So he went away in 1922, I think it was, might have been 21. He founded his own woodcraft group called the Kibo Kift. And just as an aside, there was an exhibition organised at the Whitechapel Gallery um, two years ago now, I think, at which a lot of the people who had been involved or were interested turned up. And by then, we managed to get a group photograph of about a dozen of the people who had been actually in the Kibo Gift at the beginning. And uh, it was a good experience to see those people and the all the exhibits which we gathered together, many of which were mine or my father's. And there's a good book, and Anne Bella Pollen, who teaches down in Brighton at the university, published an excellent book. And there are a couple of others. There seems to have been a bit of revival of interest in the Kibo Kift. I discovered one man who was madly collecting Kibo Kift things. So, then the war happened. Lots of changes took place. In fact, briefly before the war, a new regulation came in that made it illegal to wear uniforms. And that was a problem because the Kibbekeft had transformed itself into an economically based political organisation based on the idea of a man called um, Douglas, C.H. Douglas. And his main argument was that the whole financial system, which was based on debt, and the debt was created by the banks having the power to create money out of nothing, made for a very... Hmm, well, I don't know what the right word is, a society that didn't work well. It still exists in that format. Anyway, then the war came along, and a lot of all those, the men who were in the kindred went off and joined the army, including my father, which left me at home with my mother and my brother and sister, living in Kingston Vale, which is right between Richmond Park and Wimbledon Common, which suited me fine. I spent almost all daylight hours wandering around on the Common. My mum was amazing. She just let me go out. I remember I had actually spent some days dressed as a Red Indian, um, wandering alone on Wimbledon Common. No parent today would let you do that. Interestingly enough, I went to a school at the Robin in Robin Hood Lane, and the pub was called Robin Hood, and that suited me too. I liked the idea of Robin Hood and archery. Still do I do it? And another su- excursion last year, I was at an oak dragon camp that will come up again later, and uh, a lad who I'd seen as a newborn, Bruno who used to be a very erratic archery player. I used to organise the archery thing at the camp lunchtime. Anyway, he's now quite competitive, so we were shooting together, and we both got the same score. But I got five golds, and he didn't, so I took it as a moral victory. So archery 
through Robin Hood and Red Indians still plays a part in my life. But there was always a, another side. Perhaps the real starting point is seeing the fact that ancient Britons, as we called them then, seemed to have a network of interconnecting directions, call it that. I mean, Watkins saw them as alignments between ancient sites, hill forts and tumuli, some of which I think is true, and I'm still not a complete cynic, but I think he was Sagely's case. So anyway, by the time the war ended, I was on my bicycle, riding around the country. I managed it on two pounds a week somehow, God knows how. Um, evening feeding youth hostel costs sometimes, but often camping. And then one of the events that took place, it must have been about 16, I should think, I was cycling past Stonehenge, um, and just a little way to the west, I decided to set up camp. So finding a little triangle between three roads, um, there I was. And it was one of those really quiet, calm evenings, an overcast, so there was a dim light, a glaze, so to speak, over the landscape. And as I was sitting there with my little fire, I really into little fires, um, I thought somebody was approaching. And I could see nobody, but there was a strong sense of people or a person coming towards me and uh, it, he as it finally turned out but it transformed itself from a gamekeeper to a poacher to a medieval hunter of some sort and then to a much less distinct figure but that person sat across the fire from me and uh, I spoke to this invisible but very felt presence and heard nothing in return but what makes it interesting is that many years later I was telling this to a friend and uh, he said oh well what you ought to do is go back and imagine yourself back in that scene and take the part of the unseen presence. And then you'll hear what was said. So I did it. Because by then I was into all sorts of meditational techniques. And he explained that he was a guardian on the path for pilgrims to Stonehenge. And that his purpose being where he was, was to, as it were, stop them going any further at that point so that they would be organised the following day to walk into Stonehenge ceremonially. So there we are, there's a little something at the age of 16. All these things have stayed with me. I mean, I'm still absolutely convinced that the social credit understanding of the economic system is correct. Um, I'm still into camping being in the outside world. I'm into things which are seen as probably unreasonable, but nevertheless they're part of my experience. So what followed on in time is that I got interested in, because of the ley line connection, um, the work of Alexander Tom. Now he's a really major figure that's been apparently left to one side. Um, though published by Oxford, many books, all very carefully researched over a long lifetime. And he was working with the geometry, largely, of the stone circles and, and the fact that they had a, a system of measurement which preceded the current imperial system and certainly the metric system. Anyway, I was a, a very keen follower of Tom's work while continuing to follow the... taking a, a subscription to the uh, Leigh Hunter magazine, attending Leigh Hunter Moots. 
And there then came into my life a group called Oak Dragon. And they were very interesting. They called themselves University of the Green Earth. A man called Paldon Jenkins started it. Originally they ran six camps a year, five or six camps a year. I usually turned up for the Earth Mysteries one. Um, because as you can see, Earth Mysteries is one of the things I'm interested in. So was it your experience with the Guardian at Stonehenge that got you interested in the more esoteric stuff? Not really, because I hadn't understood what he what it was until long after. It was at least ten years later that I got the advice to understand, which is interesting in itself because the memory had stuck with me, but it had no real context. And uh, then I was told, no, you can find out, and I did. Why do you think um, camping like this is so important for society? Because you can't, we can't detach ourselves from nature. Uh, you know, nature is is central. Being in contact with it is vital for humans to live properly. At a time when artificial intelligence is, seems to be the the goal and probably interaction with human. There seems to be a, a constant idea going through, oh, we'll very soon have intelligent robots. I think they wish we were all intelligent robots. No, being, being out there in nature, sitting, just sitting, anywhere where there's greenery, <laughs> sounds a bit corny, but yeah, sit in the woods, sit on the hillside, sit on the clifftop, be in nature. I had an interesting experience yesterday. I was out with this same group of friends and while they went off to see a, a long barrow, I sat outside the ice cream shop at the bottom of the road and uh, a blackbird appeared just down the road. And the blackbird has recently become for me a bit of a totem animal. So I went, ching, ching, and uh, the blackbird hopped towards me. And it was, I was doing quite well making this engagement with a blackbird. Uh, then the car came by and that was the end of that. But um, yeah, you have experiences in nature which you don't have in the city. And a very important one for me, back to Wimbledon Common, is that I remember walking barefoot carrying my sandals down the path back towards Beverly Brook and home. Um, and I was walking on the soft, muddy bit on the side of the path because it was easier on my feet. And I became aware over to my right in the woods of a, a presence. I, it's difficult to say why one says presence. You're aware of somebody, something. And that something was the spirit of the woods, the green man, Pan. And I stopped, I just stopped and, you know, I had to connect. And uh, at that time I actually swore an oath to respect nature, to protect the trees, and to honour his presence. You can look at this in all sorts of ways, but that, that was a, an oath I made when I was about ten, I should think. And that stayed with me. But people who haven't experienced sitting around a fire, either alone or in with a group of friends at night, probably singing together, but certainly talking together, and having the night sky above, is really, very really strong. Um, and all these interests meld together. And I've been all my life fascinated by, interested in, the people of the, let's call it the Neolithic, the, the first agriculturalists in Britain. Uh, many of the things I later worked with uh, were the interaction between the stars and the earth and the measurements and ways of thinking mathematically that those ancient people had. 
it's so easy to think of them as primitive. They actually did a hell of a lot with what was available to them. Avebury has been all my life a, a powerful draw. I don't know why, I mean, Stonehenge is just down the road, which was operating, so to speak, at the same time as Avery. Has recently been ruined by English heritage. Avery remains open and free and it's got its own qualities. And one of the things I will have on my website is an interesting, fascinating interaction between Avery as a structure on the ground and the heavens which move above it. The movement of the stars well, and the sun and moon of course is vital. People in ancient times spent most of their lives without light and at night seeing the stars, seeing them move. They had constellations other than the ones we have. One of my friends from Moat Dragon heard me going on about being told that I had been, you ought to take a pupil, John. And uh, he said, oh, I'll be your pupil. So um, I said, oh, all right then. <laughs> so Jamie Blackwater came to stay with me. And uh, I really hadn't a clear plan about what to do. But I thought, well, we'll, we'll drive over to Avery. It's quite handy and it's close. And there is one thing I can show him there that might be a starting point for something. So we drove over to Avery and I showed him the fairy line, which I had discovered a year or so before. I discovered that the very first, or one of the very first bits of engineering with the earth that happened at Avery was a mound in the space just behind the Red Lion pub. Long gone, it's just a flat field, but I'd got a, a map that showed where it was. So I went and stood there, and this is what I took Jamie to see, because it's quite interesting. This is where the hand-waving comes in. If you look south, south, west, over the big high bank of Avery, you could just see the top of Silbury Hill poking above it. And it was a long time ago. When I was there, people were standing out of Silbury Hill. But there were also people who walked along the bank. And one nearby people were high, and the people on Silbury Hill were little. And there I was, I was looking at the fairies purely mental construct, but it was entertaining. So I thought, oh, well, I'll start that with Jamie. So we went and stood behind the Red Lion pub, looking across the bank. Nobody did the trick, so we couldn't really see it clearly. But I started to pay attention to this line that was coming across. And it was not one that seemed to make any sense, didn't seem to have any constructional sense or orientation sense. But I took it up to the back corner of the site it crossed the road that runs out to Swindon north out of Avery and there's a scoop in the bank there and you can stand in this scoop so we walked across climbed onto the scoop and looked and immediately it became clear that there was a, a line running from this scoop south across the northwest northeast quadrant of Avery down the line of stones in the southeast quadrant, pointed down towards Waden Hill, to this rounded mound below the camp below the henge. It was interesting, but it didn't seem to make much sense. But I thought, well, it's nothing to do with the moon or the sun, because they both do their stuff further away from the south. And um so when we went home, I dug out a computer program, which I could run, and brought up the screen for the, the South. And I thought, well, let's go for the dark bit of the sky. So I went for midwinter. What immediately appeared was Orion, 
standing over Waden Hill. And following him was his dog. So the hunter walked over the hill. And the stars in the south there moved from left to right, climbing till they reached the south and declining again. Very exciting. We found the hunter walking over the hill. And that seemed to be quite important. Then, there's a whole lot of reading references. There's a marvellous book by a man called Richard Hinckley Allen called Star Law, Their Names and Meaning. And uh, we read up the stuff about Orion. Then I became aware above, on the computer it was quite clear, immediately above Orion there were two bright stars. Um, they're Gemini. And at midnight, midwinter, they're horizontal. Now, Richard Hinckley Allen said, oh, in Indian mythology, they're known as the eyes of Aditi. Aditi is the unbounded one, the mother of the gods in many senses. And in Norse mythology, they're known as the eyes of Tiazi. So you've got two cultures miles apart knowing the stars of Gemini as eyes. So I looked at the image again and could see a figure with two eyes and the head, arms outstretched, they go from, I can't remember the names of the stars now, Procyon to something else, These are outstretched arms. The Milky Way goes right across the breasts of this figure, which is now quite clearly a goddess figure, right down to the feet where Rigel touches the earth, just over Silbury Hill. It's too powerful and too fascinating an image to ignore. So I then did a whole lot of work, well, Jamie and I together did a whole lot of work about the goddess Avery, and that's one of the sections in my website that I want to clarify and present because it's, it's important now it isn't just an Avery that this event occurs anyone can see it and it's quite clear they used to see it in India and in Norway in Britain and it can be seen in America though I haven't found a reference to Native Americans identifying those stars in that way so, that's just a brief introduction, a, a brief explanation. But it's linked right back to ancient, really ancient goddess images. And you can find a list of them. Some of the symbols are so clearly the same image. Uh, Tanit, who was the uh, Carthaginian goddess, has got a, a circle, a straight line, and a triangle. It's a bit connected to the Ankh in, in Egyptian mythology. I'm Alex Champion. For about 20, 25 years, I was a biochemist. Then I made the logical switch to making labyrinths. And you are listening to Adventures and Dowsing. Yay! Well, the news at the moment, of course, is all about this global pandemic of coronavirus, which has all but closed down everything apart from the most essential services. People everywhere are being told to avoid large social gatherings and self-isolate in their homes to slow down the spread of the virus. Uh, you can imagine this is having a huge effect on people's incomes, and nobody knows how long the situation is going to last. It's already had a large impact on many dowsing events, with the BSD Spring Symposium being cancelled, uh, the Southwest Dowsing Convention D-Fest that was to be held in Devon in June has been postponed to September and we're still not sure whether the American Society of Dowsers Convention in June or the West Coast Conference in July in California will be going ahead. Um, I was planning to give talks and run workshops in California before the West Coast Conference at which I am also scheduled as a speaker as is uh, Maria Wheatley from Avery. So uh, if, like me, uh, you've already paid for your travel to attend events like this, there is a possibility that you will be left considerably out of pocket, as will the conference organisers, of course. We simply do not know at the moment. It's an extraordinary and unprecedented situation that's having a devastating impact on the global economy, and it's really not clear what the future holds for us all. 
So as the old Chinese proverb goes, may you live in interesting times. There's certainly that. Anyway, let's get back to our talk with John. And for this next section, I asked him to discuss a little bit more about his approach to sites. One of the things um, I took from the yeah. first meetings with you was um, how to approach a site in context with the landscape yes. as opposed to an isolated unit. Yes. I think that's a very important concept. You, yeah. you need yeah. to see where things are. Okay. Answer that question is I've always thought that places only exist inside an enormous context. Remember Ronald Hutton saying to me, John, you, you, you're different. Archaeologists tend to look down the hole they're working on, you look at the landscape, which is certainly true. I mean, I had a, a sort of row with Barry Cunliffe, he was excavating down in uh, Chichester. And I've been looking at the Roman roads, the old marks of Roman roads in that area. And there's one of them that runs from a villa up on the hill down towards the site of the palace, Fishbourne. And uh, as soon as I said to him, oh, does this path... And he was excavating a track to connect with that villa up there. Oh, you can't say that. (laughs) I was really surprised at the way he put me down. Um, it was just I was just pointing out that there was a path going in one direction and a villa up there where it was pointing to. Were they, was it going there? I understand his academic viewpoint. You can't make supposition. You've got to prove it all the time. But so I'm, I, I think things may be connected. Human beings change things for a purpose. Uh, and it's one of them is travelling. I mean, to go on a complete aside, which I love that, is um, I live near a place in Hampshire with a long barrow on top of the hill um, and on the long barrow is a gibbet on which they hanged a couple of people back in the 18th century. But the, the long barrow is um, there and preserved and just opposite is a Walbury camp which is described as an Iron Age camp. It always struck me as very unlikely to be an Iron Age camp. Fairly low walls around it, fairly small ditch, not much in the way of defensive possibility. But it struck me that these two places, the Barrow and the camp, were related. Um, and I came up with the idea that excarnation, which is leaving the bodies out for the animals and the weather, to as it were, take all the flesh away and then the bones could be collected and put in the place for the bones, the barrow. They didn't put whole bodies into barrows, they collected the bones, mainly major bones and skulls from the ancestors and probably ceremonially and then, of course in my understanding at festival times very likely um, <laughs> Guy Fawkes Sawain, the the winter onset of winter festival. So that was my thought about these two places. Then I became aware, standing on the barrow, looking out to the west over quite a lot of low ground, you could see the row of hills which run along above the River Severn. And there on the ridgeline was the tallest tubulus in Britain, which is very neglected. It's covered in trees and things, but it's still a big tubulus and it's just visible from where I was. was. So I thought, oh, that's interesting, because I know you can see that tubulus from across the, the seven at Abergavenny. There's a thing called the Sugarloaf Mountain. Oh, bonk, bonk, two steps. Now, I knew you could see the Sugarloaf Mountain from a long from the south side of the Priscelli Mountains where we've been doing work, so where there were quite a number of stone, small stone circles and erections. And then I knew you could see from the this place south of the Priscelli's along to the end of the Priscelli's, and there's a line of stones called Parque Muir, which is, um, I think it's a line of three or four stones, 
that Alexander Tom said, it's quite interesting because they are pointing across the Irish Sea to Ireland. There, just visible and in very clear condition, out of the sea, the very tip of one of the mountains, I think one of the Black Mountains, in Ireland. So then I turned round. Now this isn't a straight line, this is not one of the ley lines, it's a number of intersecting, indivisible places. And I thought, if you want to travel, and you haven't got roads really, and you haven't got maps, and you, you can say to people, oh well, when you're up on that hill, look for that hill on the west. You can just see a little lump on the, on the horizon. Head for that. And when you get there, head for that mountain in Wales, you'll probably have to do a detour to get across the River Severn. And then when you're there, and so on, we do it now. How do I get from here to the post office? Oh, we go down to the corner and turn right. There's a pub there, and there's a little road opposite there. You walk. That the natural way of telling people how to go to places. And it's natural for high places, particularly, to be used as gu- guideposts. It's not ley lines, anything. It's just simple it's natural a, navigation. It's a song line. Yeah. Oh, oh yes. Yeah. I agree, that. Yeah. yeah. Incidentally, they just discovered that the... Um, People living in Australia, the original people of Australia, have been there far longer than they thought. They pushed the date line way back. I don't even like calling people Aborigines. It simply means from the beginning. But they are the closest example we have currently to people living that close-to-nature lifestyle. Very protective. And they were brutally treated by the white people when we got there. I was a member of RILCO, Research into Lost Knowledge Organisation, chaired for a while by Keith Critchlow, a very significant figure. And a man had been invited to speak, who'd come over from Australia, a native Australian. And he turned up, very nattily dressed with a suitcase and obviously ready for business. And all the people in, the, in RILCO were expecting to hear about song lines. That was my lead into this. And he stood at the lectern and opened his briefcase and put out his papers and started a long, detailed description of how his people had been treated by us as soon as we arrived there. And the crowd got quite restive. And eventually question time arose. And uh, people said, what about the song? I, I knew you were going to ask me that. Nothing to do with you. It's our business, not yours. And he was right. It's his business, their business. And uh, it's great for original people to cut us out, not allow us into their mysteries. Anyway, we were gathering at the end and he was talking to a couple of people. And I had with me um, an illustration, a book, by a man who, painter and lino cutter, lino printmaker from Cornwall, living near Menantol, and uh, I showed him this book because I was very fond of these pictures and he said, oh, that's good. That's like our work. And it was. It was a piece of work and it, what it was was the sun rising and shining into a tomb. The, the, that was the first positive reaction we got from this man from Australia. But he'd been part of a party that turned up with an Australian flag. And they got off, I suppose it was the boat, or they went down to Dover, and erected the Aboriginal flag on the white cliffs of Dover and claimed England for them. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, wow, why not? (laughs) So that was a a devious answer to your question, wasn't it? Yes. Um, Let's talk about labyrinths. Ah, uh, I know that's a favourite subject of yours. You're probably one of the labyrinth story is a good one. Yeah. yeah. When I was one of the Oak Dragon camps, um, it was Wednesday night. It was night for gathering around the fire and dancing, playing music. And uh, during the afternoon, Sig Lundgren had laid out a labyrinth to do his um, problem-solving technique, using the labyrinth to walk through the paths and uh, using each of the paths to consider a different aspect of the problem. Anyway, down down there on the labyrinth that had been laid out, a woman was dancing. 
she was wearing a sort of cloak poncho thing and it was swirling out as she danced around. And I thought, oh, that looks good. So I toddled off down towards the labyrinth. And uh, by the time I got there, the woman who was dancing left. So I went in. And uh, the idea was to take a problem in there because I'd been doing the afternoon. So I thought, how can I balance this business about work and play? Because I often felt that the things I was interested in doing were play and the thing I was doing in the office was work. So that was the question I went in with. So music was still playing and I danced my way round the seven piles to form the labyrinth. Um, and just as I got to the centre, asking my question, I saw my partner, Vicky, making her way down the field to join me. So I started to come out. And as she approached, we'd arrived at the position, which I can't explain now, but it's on the site, where we met. She was coming in and I was coming out. But we held hands and off we went. And you walk round three times together, then meet face to face, switch round, hold hands again, and do three paths together. Then you're pulled apart by the function of the labyrinth. And uh, I went to the outside, away from the labyrinth, waiting for Vicky to finish. And as she came round onto the outer path, the path of Saturn, I was able to hold her hand again and walk round the labyrinth. And of course I would say, oh, do come out and join me. It would become a sort of ritual, play, playful thing. And then we were torn apart again. She went back into, because you move in and out of you walk the labyrinth. And then finally she came out of the labyrinth and I gave her a hug. And as we were hugging, with no instruction, no reason, the band stopped playing at the top of the field. I was amazed. It was such a powerful experience. And uh, I felt it was a gift. It was a gift. Because as far as I know, nobody else would had that experience or so I started introducing that to the world and uh, Sig was a member of the American Labyrinth Society and he'd already shown them the dance a couple of times and then he asked me to go over so I went over to Baltimore I think it was I'm not certain the first time I went and to cut a long story short we had a hundred people one evening, dancing the labyrinth together. Now, what happens you get several, many pairs of people on the labyrinth, they approach each other in the opposite direction. To which the simple answer was, people coming clockwise, raise your hands, if you're holding hands. People going anti-clockwise, duck through underneath. It's a bit like a folk dance, really. However, on this particular occasion, I've made the foolish claim that you could use the same process for a meditational walk if the person coming in closed their eyes when they took the hand of the person coming out. Then they could be led, and it's a very powerful experience, round the labyrinth with their eyes closed. So, all had gone well on the first attempt. We all danced. Then, the band was still there playing music. People said, oh, can we go back in again? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, no problem. Then people with both intentions went in, dancers and meditators. And my heart sank. I thought, oh God, it's all going to go wrong. But it didn't. In the most delightful way, it went well. The people with their eyes open dancing were moving more quickly than the meditators. So they simply split and went round the meditators. And the meditators continued in the merry way. So it was a great evening and... Uh, I don't know how many people have walked the labyrinth simultaneously, but a hundred is a good good figure to work with. However, I'll do another little bit on the labyrinth, because this is entertaining. The labyrinth is sort of famous through Cretan myth. There's a minotaur, a monster figure at the centre of the labyrinth, and uh, these poor young men brought down from Athens were made to go in to face the monster, and they got killed, apparently, until Theseus turned up, and he 
they got friendly, as they say, with Ariadne, who showed him a way out by using a cord. I always thought, is it a daft story? A, who walked on into the centre of a labyrinth, which presumably had walls, to meet a, a mad bull figure, man with a bull's head, um, to get killed? And this business about the bit of string doesn't work either. So I started to think, well, what would actually work? And um, there's a thing, a lot of primitive cultures use it, called a bull roarer, which is a piece of stick on a string which you can whirl around. And it roars. And um, I suddenly thought, if there was somebody standing at the centre of a labyrinth with walls, whirling a bull roarer or doing it independently, it would certainly be a test of courage to be able to go all the way to the centre. Most sensible people hearing roaring noises and having fed a story about a monster would run. They would come out having not encountered the monster, then they would be killed by the people attending. But anyone brave enough to go all the way would discover it was just a man with a piece of string and a stick. So that's a little fantasy of mine, but I did try a bull roar, or have done it several times, but to, to test it in enclosed circumstances, I went down to the local railway arch, and it is amazing. If you do it in a cave or in an enclosed space, it is quite a loud and terrifying sound. Thinking into the future, how do you think society is going? What do you think the path should be that we, we take? Well, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Um, optimistic, without good reason. Um, I always feel that when a crisis happens, a big change happens, and it may be a change for the better. I mean, unfortunately, the most recent example of a really big collapse, followed by disaster, was the rise of Hitler. It was the collapse of German economic society that gave rise to all the elements which created the Nazi movement. And to some extent in America, you know, the Donald Trump stuff is based on the fact that society is getting worse. The position of people without access to, to power um, is getting worse and they will react by becoming extremists. But uh, now I th there's so much going on. I mean, I'm, at the moment, one of the things that fascinates me is the interest in consciousness itself. Boom, it's happened in the last sort of four or five years. People have suddenly started to use the word consciousness a lot more, both in a scientific sense and in a spiritual sense. Um, we don't understand what goes on in the human mind. There's so much more. And some of it is on the fringe of what people think is superstition. I don't know that it's all superstition. I mean, I've personally been involved in lots of groups which are would be seen as not entirely science-based, and yet I really trust science. I, mean, I buy at great expense the new scientists every week because I think what happens in science is important. One of the people active in consciousness work is a man called Stuart Hammeroff at the moment, who worked with um, a British mathematician, um, Penrose, yeah. Roger Penrose. Yeah, Roger Penrose. And they've simply done two things. They've said, hey, there's more stuff going on in the brain, in consciousness, than we fully understand. And also that the physical mechanisms of that are not properly understood. And I hope that gets somewhere. I hope we do have a better understanding. People need to change their minds. Current modes of thinking are, as it were, not satisfying. They're not just leading us astray, but they don't give people a life which will be more fulfilling and more close to nature, getting back to where we were before. I mean, I'm a great fan of um, Rupert Sheldrake. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, I think he's series of very simple experiments we can all do which support 
paranormal thought processes, even with animals, because you've got to share our experiences and our abilities with animals, um, which most people don't like doing. But, you know, the fact that a cat or a dog knows 10 minutes, miles away, that whatever they think of as the, their owner, is on the way back. Leap off windows or jump, go towards the front door. Everybody has that experience. You have to explain it somehow. I mean, there's a whole lot of things. But the one I really liked, I read about, was that they had a little keyboard with eight numbers and a central number or non-number. And you have to choose eight people that you think might be ringing you. And you agree to do this experiment. And then when the phone goes, you go over and you think, oh, it could be Fred, you know. And it is Fred. So you press one, that's Fred's number. So everybody's constantly making a record. And you can get a, a performance rating. Now, chance is so important. I mean, if you only write five out over three, I'm not expressing this very well, but a small chance variation has to be explained if it's consistent. You can't say nothing's happening. The book came out recently called uh, Real Magic. Which Pete is, Yeah. One of my favourite books. Yeah. yeah. And I'm, that's, that's where I am on this whole business of magic. It's a... Uh, it has to be considered a part of the real world and explicable with science or with rational thinking. Pushing, oh, it's all irrational, it's all people's imagination. It isn't really a very sensible response. Well, I've had personal experience of uh, telepathy and I'm absolutely convinced that it's real. Um, I don't understand how it works. But it does suggest that there can be interconnection between the minds of different people. Yeah. And that opens up a whole area of research. Yeah, that's my position. I think all these things are matters for investigation, not for condemnation or exclusion. Well, I think we'll leave things there for the moment. Now, given that I recorded this interview a few months ago, I'm still rather shaken by that uh, comment from John about the collapse of German economic society leading to the rise of Hitler. Uh, That sort of resonates at the moment with this whole coronavirus situation, so let's hope that John's statement isn't prophetic of things to come. Now, remember you can find more details of John's work and the stuff we've talked about today on John's website at johnappleton.org. That's J-O-N-A-P-P-L-E-T-O-N. And, uh, of course, I'll put a link on the uh, main website at adventuresanddowsing.com. So that's it for this episode. If you have any comments that you would like to share, you can either send an email to podcast at adventuresanddowsing.com or you can leave a comment on individual episodes at the website adventuresanddowsing.com. Thanks once again for listening, and uh, thanks, as usual, to Wintergatten and Ian Pegler for the music. And I hope you can join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing. Oh, I'm so pleased to have done this. I hope you've got enough to go on with, so to speak. <laughs>